You're listening to Mind of the Alpha, raw, unedited, and straight from the wolf's mouth. What's up, everybody? It's Bobby, and we are back with another podcast this week. We've got Captain Chuck Ruffin in the... Am I pronouncing your last name correct, Chuck? Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Ruffin. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I was saying it right. So you're a yeah. uh, captain in Space Force, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, been in the Space Force for just a few years now. Um, once the service started, I transferred from the Air Force, uh, where I was originally a space operations officer in the Air Force. And then once the Space Force started, uh, all of the core career fields that were space related um, basically transferred into the Space Force. And then those who wanted to come decided to transfer also. <laughs> and cool, I was one cool. of them. So you were you said you were in the Air Force before this? Yeah, I've been in the service uh, for over 17 years now. So I, oh, wow. I enlisted back in 2005. I was originally an enlisted guy. And uh, so I, I made the rank of tech sergeant, E6, uh, mm-hmm. in the Air Force. And okay. then I commissioned in 2016, where I became a space operations officer. Cool, cool. So what what exactly do you do for in Space Force? I mean, what's your what's your job? Um, currently, I am stationed here at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama, and my role down here was uh, to come down and establish a brand new Delta and a squadron. Um, mm-hmm. A Delta is kind of like a, a headquarters for professional military education, and that was to essentially develop all the programs for guardians that will go through professional military education that include um, like officer training school, uh, squadron officer school. Then we have like air war college equivalent. Um, so any, any guardian that goes through those phases of their career for education, that's what I came down here to do was to establish that unit to manage that. Um, but as a space operations officer uh, role, typically when we're in operations, um, my role typically has been around um, satellite command and control. And then, of course, missile warning and missile defense. So basically operating or managing sites that um, can detect any kind of potential weapon system that may um, come towards the United States or, you know, detected launches to any bases overseas. Um, so we, we do a lot of the command and control for, for those capabilities. Really? So that, that's got to be kind of uh, nerve wracking sometimes, I guess, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the DOD has always got a watchful eye on, you know, the the bad guys out there that want to do any kind of harm, right? So um, you have a lot of critical roles of servicemen and women that are working around the clock that pretty much just pay attention to the theater um, all over the world. And with space, Mm -hmm. you generally are kind of spread out, right? Like your, your roles may not be related to stuff that's right off the coastline. Um, you might also find that your, uh, career, your job is something that has to do with overseas. And, you know, that's kind of what, what we do is we kind of keep a watch and eye on what kind of actions are happening. So, so what, what exactly, I mean, I assume that, you know, with being in space force and, and, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but you know how like the Navy has the sea and, um, Air Force has the air and armies, ground troops, Marines, that sort of thing. What exactly 
do you guys have like a set area in space that is considered American, like a uh, United States territory? Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Guys, we're always telling you, you got to talk to someone when you're not feeling yourself and you're having a rough time with your mental health. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. I myself go through seasonal depression, and sometimes I just don't want to leave the house or, or leave the room, even for that matter. That is where BetterHelp's coming in. You can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or hell, even a video call, all from the comfort of your own home. If your therapist isn't the right fit for you for any reason at any time, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, gives you more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable rate. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com alpha. That's BetterHelp.com slash A-L-P-H-A. Yeah, so our boundary for the Space Force that was originally established was anything from 100 kilometers and above, so out to infinity, ultimately. And then, um, you know, that's kind of like our AOR, area of responsibility, is 100 kilometers and above. And that's outside um, of the, outside of the um, it, I, that's straight up and down, I guess. I mean, <laughs> I don't, I don't yeah, know how to explain cool. it. Is that like uh, that up 100 kilometers cool. from our borders up? Or how does that work? From, from land, yeah, from okay. from land up into space. So, um, 100 kilometers is the boundary that is recognized as the international boundary uh, between the atmosphere and then the first portion of space. So, um, that is what is recognized as the the first distance to where mm -hmm. you're actually physically into space is at 100 kilometers. Um, really? So, anything beyond that. Or below that is airspace, and that's technically controlled by the Air Force. Okay. And then anything above that is uh, the Space Force. So you have items that are in low Earth orbit, you know, that anything above 100 kilometers out to low Earth orbit, which is about the 500-kilometer mark, um, for instance, like the International Space Station or any satellites that are in that uh, range, um, that would be in, in low Earth orbit. And then there's several other orbits that we also manage and maintain like um, medium earth orbits and then geospatial um, or geosynchronous uh, earth orbit. And then you have highly elliptical orbit, um, which is also called Molnaya. And so there's various altitudes out to about 26,000 kilometers um, that we, you know, have satellites that operate in those ranges. Mm -hmm. So, so how are you able to explain how like um I don't I don't know how far in depth you can go into this subject obviously because I'm I'm sure some of it's classified information <laughs> but are you yeah. able to explain how our um our defenses work for you to detect like missiles that have been launched or I, I I'm assuming like we have um a system of satellites across you know in our, in our territory or orbiting Earth at all times are you able to tell us more about that? Sure. Yeah. We, I mean, the general concepts of some of the radar sites that we currently have in the United States have been around for decades, for generations since like, okay, we had some uh, technical difficulties, everyone. So sorry about that. Um, obviously, you know, Chuck's out there doing his thing. So I'm sure 
you know, we might, we might cut out in and out, but Hey man, we're here for it. So I was asking you, I mean, I, uh, we, the last question I'd ask you is, I don't know how in depth you can go into, um, you know, kind of the way that we detect missiles and, and launches across the United, or I'm sorry, across the earth. Um, are you able to tell us more about how that works? Yeah. Um, so I can talk to like on a pretty basic level, it's, uh, generally this information is all uh, public knowledge and it has been for a pretty long time. So the, the radars that we have in operation to date that are staged around the United States have been around since the cold war. And, you know, those, those radars were primarily developed to detect ballistic missiles. Um, and they're, and they're large, they're massive. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, one that I went to this last week is Eglin radar It's down in Florida. It's about 11 stories tall. And well, so these are based is, uh, on on Earth. I mean, they're on the ground. Yeah, the, these are just one part of the architecture that, you know, contributes to our capability to detect uh, long range ballistic missiles and okay. you know, those kinds of things. So um, and, th and they're staged in, in Florida. There's one in uh, California. There's one in North Dakota. Um, so, I mean, anybody can go out and, you know, search for the radars that are in the United States and read all about them and what their capabilities are. Um, when it comes to what their role is, even, you know, you can research about what, what they're designed to do. Mm -hmm. um, and they were originally designed to detect long range ballistic missiles due to the cold war era. Um, and then we have some overhead capabilities, you know, that we are able to uh, some detect launches from, from overseas, you know, pretty quickly as well that are on orbit, you know, satellites that enable that same mission set. So um, there's a multiple functions that you have that kind of are combined that contribute to the overall missile warning architecture for the United States. I got you. And how long, like if you do detect a launch of some sort, how long do you have like a response time for something like that? It just depends on the type of system that is being launched um going into the specifics it it's uh it's kind of hard to say <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but it's within a few minutes you know it's not very not very long i got you okay and so does it does it worry you at all because you know some of the research that i've done like um these uh this new technology with like hypersonic missiles and that sort of thing i mean what and i've heard that you know, if Russia, for instance, launches one and it actually works, you know, we've seen how their military <laughs> actually works, you know, their weapon yeah. works. Um, and it, I've heard that it can, you know, strike us within, within 60 seconds or something like that. Um, uh, 60 seconds is pretty far-fetched. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. I mean, it takes, uh, you know, standard ballistic missiles that launch take anywhere between five to 10 minutes just to get from launch to where its target is and then mm -hmm. hypersonic glide vehicles you know those types of weapon systems that are now uh, becoming more revolutionary they are much harder to detect um, much more rapid in capabilities um, yeah and you know there is some worry there of course with those capabilities but um, the best part about that the defense of uh, the united states is that we have other capabilities that are designed to counter some of those threats um, you know, we have a ballistic missile defense system that, you know, we, we do test launches out of Vandenberg quite frequently where 
you know, some of those systems are designed to prevent um, those types of ballistic missiles that threaten the United States, mm-hmm. uh, preventing them from coming to the U.S. So, um, so there's a pretty in-depth architecture that is out there uh, to protect against those types of threats. Kind of like a Skynet type of thing. <laughs> you remember <laughs> yeah, Skynet not... from, um, what was it, yeah. the uh, Terminator? Yeah, very very sci-fi realm, but in the real world, yeah, just just with really old technology. Right. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's stuff out there that we're not allowed to know about, you know. I mean, from what I understand, the military, any branch of the military is about 20 years ahead of the technology that civilians have access to, you know what I mean? So I I wonder why it is. What's that? So you'd be pretty surprised. Competitively, you know, we, we do design systems to be, you know, the next best thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we actually in the space realm, uh, we rely heavily with our commercial partners to help us design those capabilities and and provide us unique assets that um, give us that competitive edge, um, which is which is obviously important. Right. You know, the adversary is is always designing new ways to, um, you know, defeat us. And so we're we're always looking for ways to prevent that, you know. Right. Um, so. Right. So do you, do you, in with the recent, like, uh, you have these UFO sightings or whatever it is that they've, um, been seeing, they shot down that, that balloon and that sort of thing. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Is that something that, you know, was, uh, do you think that that's of this world or do you think that that's something that is extraterrestrial or are you allowed to say? Yeah, I mean, most of that is definitely from this world, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's there's always objects that are uh, traveling through uh, space. And then, of course, you know, they come down to certain elevations. You know, the first event that we had with the balloon, you know, it was already identified that it came from overseas. Um, the other objects that were also taken down, I don't know where they're at in the investigation of where those originated from. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of them was like part of a science uh science testing from a university, which is very possible. Um, you know, we, just because, you know, we, the objects are identified, you know, from that elevation doesn't mean we always know the origins until after the fact. And it, and it takes some time to discover where they come from. Um, nothing has given us the indication that it could be from another world that, that I'm tracking anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, and if so, then, you know, that information, I don't know where, when or where that will go, you know, that's yeah. for me to, to know, I don't have the need to know for that kind of stuff. So. Right. Right. So you, so you're basically, um, you know, other than the detection of like, uh, you know, missile strikes and things like that, what is something that you do? I mean, what's, what's a day look like in, in your, in your role? Like, what do you, you know, what are you doing on a daily basis? Yeah. Yeah, for um, for a lot of space operations officers that are based out of Colorado, um, take for instance GPS, the constellation for navigation. Um, I I don't know, but I find it uh, kind of interesting that general population doesn't realize that in the Air Force, uh, primarily the Air Force was the one that used to manage and maintain the GPS uh, constellation, so it was always ran by airmen. And um, that goes for the entire uh, GPS constellation that we have on orbit. Mm-hmm. And now those satellites have, you know, the management of them have come over to the Space Force. So now you have guardians working 24-7, which manage and maintain the state of health. Um, and, of course, ensure that the satellites are operating the way they need to 
uh, for GPS capabilities, which enables precision navigation and timing, um, which is critical infrastructure to the point of, you know, you being able to go to the grocery store and use your debit card or credit card um, at the cash register. It's it, it enables that capability due to the timing of that financial transaction. So the banking system is heavily reliant on GPS. Um, you know, our ability to go to the ATM machine and pull money out of the ATM enabled by GPS, um, your ability to buy oh, yeah, gas. I didn't know that. I didn't yep. know it played a role in that at all. Yep, absolutely. The The entire United States uh, timing system, when it comes to financial transactions, you know, your ability to pay gas at the pump is enabled by GPS and it's uh, precision navigation and, and timing, which is the most crucial part. Um, so anything really? that you use to, to take a debit card or a credit card and, and mm -hmm. purchase anything, um, GPS has a significant role in that. So um, your guardians now are sitting 24 seven on console, ensuring that those satellites stay in orbit, they stay functioning, um, they do the manage and maintain. So if there's any current corrupted data flow, um, these people are now technical experts trained to um, manage those systems. I got you. Okay. So, so what, what exactly happens if, if a satellite goes down? Do you, I mean, do you guys have, do you guys go like physically go to space and fix it? Or <laughs> do you work with like um, NASA or SpaceX or what, you know, how do you, how do you do that? Um, for most space systems that are on orbit now, uh, their lifespans are pretty lengthy. You know, originally, the design structure was about 10 years, but some of them have gone beyond their original design life when they were engineered. And there are still satellites that are on orbit that have only originally were like a, a design life of about 10 years, but they're still functional. They're like 25, 30 years old. And um, so what, what happens is that we constantly look for new capabilities to kind of replace those systems. Um, if there's something that's crucial to the network, there there's ways for us to work with partner nations to either try to bring the satellite back online or to discover, you know, new means to provide the same service. And, you know, that's, that's all part of the acquisitions process. And you mm -hmm. know, there's a whole lot of things that go into play with that capability. So um, it's pretty complicated. <laughs> so how, how do you, how do you, um, how do you manage like space debris and, you know, and things like that? I mean, obviously there's a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, small meteorites or whatever they are, comets um, flying around space. How do you, how do you manage that? I mean, cause I, I gotta, I would, I would think that these satellites are constantly being bombarded with these other debris, right? Yeah. So, well, not, not all the time. Um, we have a, another portion of the Space Force called Space Domain Awareness. And uh, again, our architecture that does, you know, satellite detection ultimately or managing the space, um, you know, Space Domain Awareness is a crucial part of that because we are tracking several thousand objects in space in any given day. Mm -hmm. um, you have over 20,000 objects that we currently are cataloged in the space catalog, um, over 40,000 different objects in space that are either um, unserialized or at least tracked. Um, and, you know, we know that those objects are there, but we haven't identified what it is. Um, so we have a pretty significant amount of objects that we track. 
to include the amount of satellites that are in operation day to day. Um, when it comes to any potential threats to those systems, um, usually there's kind of a notification process that is done um, within the Space Force. And if there is anything that comes in close proximity based on the data that we have, uh, we'll usually send out some kind of notification to the system owner or the satellite owner and let them know, you know, hey, this thing is gonna be within X amount of kilometers or feet um, within your system by this time based on the data that we have. So these satellites aren't owned by the government, they're owned by like private private uh, corporations and that sort of thing? Yeah, there's several different countries out there that own satellites. There's commercial co companies that own satellites. There's government satellites. There's foreign adversaries. They have their own uh, satellites up there. So, you know, at any given moment, um, you know, the, the entire world that is a space-faring nation that has anything on orbit Mm -hmm. um, is, is being watched, you know, all the time. So. That's crazy. I, 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 know, I guess I never thought about it that way. So what are the, what, what are the, like, how, do, how, how can you determine who is allowed to, to launch a satellite? I mean, what kind of regulation is there on that? Um, there's not really a regulation on who's allowed. Uh, any nation can be a space faring nation. So um, the space treaty ultimately allows us to utilize space in a free and fair um, utilization. So there's nothing mm -hmm. that limits a country to utilize space for any reason. What, what if I decided like, Hey, I want to build a satellite and I want to launch it in space. And I had the capability to do that. Am I allowed to do that? As long as you, uh, follow all the rules, I guess, and make sure that you talk to the appropriate like government organizations to really ensure you can safely get into orbit. Um, yeah, you should be, should be fine. Just like Elon Musk, when he started mm -hmm. his um, original space endeavors with SpaceX, um, you know, he had to file petitions and patents and, you know, coordinate with the FAA and mm -hmm. all of those significant government organizations to notify that these launches were taking place. Um, but of course, you know, getting certain types of fuels and things, those are also regulated to give right. you enough thrust to get off the ground to get into space. Yeah, I was watching, um, I don't know how often you watch podcasts or listen to podcasts, but um, do you ever listen to Lex Friedman's podcast at all? Uh, no, I, I do not. No? Okay. He had a guy on there um, a few weeks back, and forgive me, I can't remember his name, but he was talking about um, some of the rockets that Elon Musk has, or SpaceX has, and talking about how big they are, like 220 feet, feet tall. Yeah. And, um, he's developing them so that these rockets are not just single use rockets that they can use them multiple times. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, which is crazy to me. Cause I don't even think NASA has that capability. Do they? Uh, no, NASA has not developed that capability. I mean, SpaceX, when they first started launching their Falcon nine rockets, uh, the number one thing that he wanted to do was design something that was reusable because mm -hmm. it saves costs. Um, you know, and it also eliminates the amount of space debris left on orbit especially when um he's only reaching low earth orbit with that design of rocket um now okay. you have the the larger rocket that is out in texas mm -hmm. uh, the starship you know that that design is much different it's meant to get all the way out to the moon and back um so it, it's going to be massive in comparison how long um, is it till they launch something like that do you think i mean do you think they'll ever get to the point where they can reach the moon and come back with with that rocket uh that's what his hopes are i mean the the starship's design is 
to be able to get out to the moon and come back. Um, that is that is ultimately the design. I know the initial stage is supposed to at least put the um, the payload into space, and then mm -hmm. it'll do its thing to go around the moon and then come back. Ultimately, man, that would be crazy. I I would I would kill to go to space. I mean, would, do you do you ever have like um, do you think you'll ever have the the uh, the uh, opportunity to actually travel to space? <laughs> my wife is sitting next to me and she heard what you asked and she said no because your wife said no uh, but, uh, as a space operations officer i don't have um i guess the capability to go to space with my current role uh, in order to do that i would have to apply to like the nas astronaut program mm -hmm. and then you know go through the the formal training to become an astronaut um uh, within the service so it uh, there's obviously an opportunity if I wanted to pursue it, you know, if I wanted to go become uh, an astronaut, I could potentially apply and go that route. But my, my technical expertise falls into space operations, primarily management of satellites, knowing how orbits work, mm -hmm. um, our systems, electromagnetic spectrum. So a little more technical than flying a rocket. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. Uh, you cut. Uh, you cut out a little bit there at the end. You so. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I got okay. you. Um. Sorry about that. So, is there, um, you know, so obviously, then, is there any part of Space Force that is capable of going actually going to space, or do you actually have to apply to be in? I know you said you would have to apply to be an astronaut with NASA. Um. So there's no. There's no part of space force or like anything that that is able to uh bypass that and go go to space or so as of right now we don't have any like manned space missions within the space force we do have um so i guess the last instance we ever had a guardian in space was on the international space station and he had uh crossed over from the air force Mm -hmm. and went into the space force and became a guardian um but he went through the the manned space flight uh training program through through nasa and then was was an airman originally um so we we go through the federal government route right to to get right. into space and that's a separate program outside of uh outside of the service i got you okay um what what about you know space travel or anything like that? Do you think that how close are we to uh, like commercial travel to space? Um, commercial travel, I mean, we all see it on the news, like Jeff Bezos and uh, what's the other guy's name? Um, I can't remember his name from Virgin Galactic, uh, but you know SpaceX even mm -hmm. you know had started doing commercial travel. So I mean, really, it comes down to a company that is willing to fork out the the amount of money that it takes to design something that can go into space safely and, and come back. Um, I know that there's uh, definitely a lot of endeavors, a lot of companies that are ambitious and they want to do mm -hmm. that. It's a very expensive. It's not something that uh, is easily done and logistics wise, it, it costs a lot of money. So will we ever get to commercial space travel? Yeah, most likely we will get to a point to where we'll start to see it more regularly. Um, especially with more investors and more competing companies coming to the table um, to design capabilities where we can go to space, which, you know, makes the Space Force job 
a little bit more challenging even, you know, now we have civilians going and traveling to and from space. So, you know, we, we're always making sure that we're, we're protecting them as well, um, right. ensuring there's no threat to them, um, you know, and, and going and so on and so forth. So how, how closely do you work with, uh, like SpaceX and, and, um, you know, even NASA for that? I, I don't even know. NASA is probably not doing a whole lot of, um, they're not launching a lot of space missions. That's, is that correct? Yeah. NASA is basically just their facilities. I mean, they do mostly like research and development scientific mm -hmm. studies. They're, they're kind of a different arm, uh, for space than what the DOD does. Uh, SpaceX, they, they launch their rockets from space force facilities from bases that are owned by the space force. So, uh, for instance, like SpaceX launching on the West coast, uh, they launched from Vandenberg Space Force Base, so the, the launch pad itself is on Vandenberg. Oh, really? Okay. So you guys work like hand in hand when they're when they're doing these launches, then? Yeah, exactly. We the Guardians they they manage and maintain the range, if you will, um, mm -hmm. and they they essentially make sure that everything is safe, good to go, hunky dory, and protected. And then once the launch the rocket launches, um, you know, we monitor it up to a certain elevation. And then after that, it's, um, you know, up to the commercial company. Gotcha. Okay. So, so when, you know, and one of my thoughts are if they do like, uh, cause I know Elon Musk is talking about how, um, he wants to be able to inhabit Mars or take trips to Mars back and forth. Yeah. Um, it, would it be something where, cause I mean, that's pretty far-fetched to me. I mean, that's going to take, I, I, I think we're years away from that, you know, a long time away from doing anything like that. Um, it seems like to me, though, that he would have to have some sort of, like, docking station in space um, <laughs> or, you know, to, for a rocket to go from Earth, dock in space, and then they get off that, that rocket, and they get on another rocket, go to Mars or whatever it is, and then come back and then dock and then go back down to, to Earth. Is that something that you think is viable or do you think that that's just kind of far-fetched? No, uh, not far-fetched at all. I mean, it's certainly something that is, is doable. Um, I think one of the original concepts was to have um, a station around the moon uh, to where it's got like a fueling station, if you will. Um, once you get out into space and you get out to the moon, then they would dock and refuel and kind of resupply and then potentially launch to um, Mars from that location. So, um, you know, it, it takes a really long time to get to Mars. We've we've never traveled humans to Mars. We've only traveled systems um, like the rovers and such. So those payloads are much different, you know, mm -hmm. uh, different weight, different math behind the amount of thrust you need to send an object to Mars uh, versus sending a capsule that will now carry humans into space with, you know, ad additional equipment. So, um, right. I don't know if I'd want to be the, the first ones, um, to volunteer for something like that. You know <laughs> what I mean? Although I, I often say though, I mean, if, if I didn't, I, I have a family and that sort of thing. So I, if I was just a single guy, I would be definitely willing to, uh, to volunteer to do something like that. I mean, obviously yeah. I'm not in the shape for it, but <laughs> the, the good thing is that, before we take any kind of long leaps of faith like that, you know, there's a lot of testing that goes into making sure that these rockets that are being designed and built uh, will be safe for that type of travel. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, we, you know, the Artemis program that just started with the, with NASA, you know, they, they launched the SLS rocket, which You still there, Chuck? Just to see if we can get the rocket into space and send the, the capsule around the moon and bring it back safely. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, now with all the R&D that went into that launch, it's now being applied to Artemis II, and hopefully we will be improving that process. And then eventually we'll have the Artemis II NASA crew uh, go on board and launch you know, and in concert with that, you know, Elon Musk, they had he has Starship and Starship is going through its testing phases right now. We just saw the, the rockets um, do their test just, I think, last week or two weeks ago now. Really? Um, and, and most likely we'll we'll start to see the next phase where um, he will begin stacking and then, of course, fueling and then potentially launching Starship into space to do the testing it will take to get. Uh, to wherever it's going to go, whether it's going to go to moon or if it's going to go to Mars and back. Um, I don't, I don't so that's know. That's a possibility that he may send Starship to Mars. The The intent is to be able to take Starship to Mars and wow. land on Mars and then relaunch from Mars and then come back to Earth. That's mind-blowing, man. That's absolutely mind-blowing. <laughs> like, this is things that I dreamed about as a kid. I've always been yeah. really big into space, so... Yeah, uh, it, uh, it's, it's definitely in the realm of possible. And, you know, that, that company is, is working on it. It's obviously takes several years to design and develop. Um, but you know, all success stories come with good investments later on and, right. uh, the future of space is, is now really. And the cool part is that the space force is playing a, a pretty big part in a lot of that, that is ongoing. You know, we, we obviously, do things differently with the defense uh, side of the house for national security. But, you know, we, we also have partnerships with federal government and, you know, it's commercial companies where we're doing a lot of the monitoring and tracking of those systems. And, you know, a lot of guardians like myself are really enthusiastic about space just as much as everyone else. You know, we, we love to see the progress. We love to see what commercial companies are doing. Mm -hmm. um, we talk about it all the time because the industry is constantly evolving and, uh, you know, it, it's exciting to us to, to know that the things that we dreamt of as or saw as little kids, you know, in sci-fi movies um, is, is coming to reality. So. So what what kind of like um, how, you know, Space Force, when did when was it um, Trump, uh, President Trump put it into place? Um, when was that? 2019? Yep. December 2019 with the signing of the National Defense Authorization Act. So how was it how has it evolved since then? I mean, like were you so did you start did you transfer over immediately into Space Force when you were able to, or were you kind of like, you know, what did you were you there when it started? I mean, like when it first came off the ground. Yeah, I was I was a part of the first um the wave, I guess if you call it that, um, of Air Force um, space operations that were transferred into the space force. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't physically get signed on the dotted line until September of the following year. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, political and congressional like rules and stuff that needed to be passed before, you know, they were allowing 
uh, a bunch of guardians to come into the space force, a lot of stand up requirements, you know, mm-hmm. um, but once they allowed the initial core of the air force to be signed over to the space force, that's when we had our opportunities. And so I, I was there from the beginning. I saw the NDAA. Um, I had a lot of friends working in Capitol Hill, mm-hmm. um, kind of letting me know like what was going on. Like, Hey, the space force was real. We're still doing all the things it takes to get you guys into the service. So just stand by and we'll have the documentation for you soon to sign on the dotted line and, and you'll be transferred over. So how has it evolved since then? Cause you, I mean, if you think about it, that you guys are the only branch of military in the world. That's like that, that does what you do. Right. That's like what you are and, and specifically yeah. like space force. So how, yeah. you know, when, when you first launched, I'm sure there was some things that were, um, it, it was kind of a learning process, right? I mean, what, you know, how, how has it evolved since then? Sure. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I say that because the evolution is, has been small, but enduring and, and important. Um, mostly what has changed within the first three years is that we have realigned forces from other branches of service that were doing satellite or space related missions. Um, for instance, like satellite communications, mm-hmm. uh, the Navy and the Army both had units that managed satellite communications within their branch of service. Um, just a few weeks ago, um, we signed all of those units over to the Space Force now. So satellite communications is now holistically managed by um, by guardians. And that is uh, military satellite communications primarily, like defense-related systems. Mm-hmm. Um that are that were originally ran by DOD in different branches are now underneath the Space Force. Um, on the development of Guardians, we we started out. We didn't have a name at first. Um, we were just Space Force members. Uh, we voted in. We took a long vote about which what we we're going to be called, and then we were uh, designated as Guardians. So you'll hear that term. You know, anybody that is in the Space Force, we are considered a Guardian, much like. Uh, an army member is a soldier. Yeah. I've always in- heard I, in since you guys, but so, so since you guys announced that you were guardians, I've always thought of that movie, uh, guardians of the galaxy. Guardians of the galaxy. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So did, did that have any play in, in what you guys, how no. you guys decided to name yourselves or. <laughs> well, historically in the air force, a lot of our mottos or even just phrases of some of the air force, uh, space related commands, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, the air force space command, uh, the motto was Guardians of the High Frontier. Um, that was kind of part of their tagline. So the term Guardians come from the lineage of the Air Force and how we've associated uh, that we've always been Guardians of the High Frontier. Um, and so that that's kind of what became our name. I got you. You even kind of look like one of the guys out of that movie, so. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> do, um, what about, do you guys have any, like, uh, is there any like specific weaponry or anything like that that you guys are developing or, or I don't know if you can tell me this, but um, that you're developing specific to Space Force? I mean, something that you guys would only have capabilities to use or, or anything like that or? Um, not really weaponry. Uh, weaponizing space is kind of frowned upon <laughs> uh, just because right. of its access and availability. So it, it you know, it, it prevents other countries from being able to utilize space, you know, safely and freely. So uh, internationally, it's recognized that we, we genuinely don't 
put weapons into space. Um, if is there capabilities that the space force is working on that you know enables other mission sets in the future? Um, sure, uh, weapons though, I I don't think so. Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> so, would you um, consider your space force just to be more of a support, um, like a support force for other branches of military, or if you guys so say say we um, God forbid say we go to war yeah. tomorrow, is there right. like um what what kind of uh, are you just like a support system then for the other branches or or no. is there actual like battle groups that you have or or things like that or so there there are certain capabilities that the space force does bring to it uh, more in the electronic warfare capability so like jamming um those types of capabilities for mm. um adversary like communications right um there are some capabilities that we can do in that regard um, and then we have, you know, our, our missile warning and missile defense architecture, you know, we, we utilize missile warning to basically tell our missile defense systems to get activated. Um, and that, that is a part of the space force. So, I got you. um, there is more of a war fighting component to the space force than just being support, um, primarily that, you know, it, it's two different worlds in operations. You have your, mm -hmm space operations that deal with satellite communications and overhead detection. And then you have, you know, your operations where you have electronic warfare, uh, you have orbital warfare and then space domain awareness. Um, so several caveats within the space force that is got a war fighting component to it. So are, are people able to just join space force or do they have to be part of another military service before they transfer over? How does that work? Yeah, we, um, we just brought in about 500 accessions a year uh, for core members, like, you know, civilians that are interested in joining the Space Force. Um, primarily right now, we, we are dealing with a lot of inter-service transfers. So we, we have a lot of Air Force members transferring still. Uh, we just took in some Navy, uh, Army, and Marine Corps members that are inter-service transferees. But anyone can walk into an Air Force recruiting office and go tell them, hey, I'm interested in joining the Space Force. What are the requirements? Um, we have a little bit higher standard requirements when it comes to the technical aspects. Um, and, you know, we're only taking in so many per year. That's a congressionally mm -hmm. mandated number. It's something that we can't get around until, you know, the Congress passes a larger budget for the Space Force. Is that strictly because of the budget, or is that because it's still a newer branch of yeah. military? And we they don't, and you know, I, I no no um no offense here, but is it because they don't see the need for a larger space force? Do they not see that, or is it just because of budget reasons? Yeah, primarily budget. Um, what a lot of people I think don't see that's on the media is that there's a huge bipartisan support for the space force mm -hmm. um, when the sport when the space force ah, sorry when the space force was first spoken about we were considering developing our own core of space professionals back in 2001 uh, originally and uh, of course 2001 changed our priorities uh, and we've been in a wartime uh, environment for the mm -hmm. past two decades and now that that has changed you know we were able to shif shift our focus and realign our forces and establish the, the branch of service that was necessary uh, 
couple of de- decades ago, but still functioning uh, the way we needed to. Right. And, I, and so, I think President Trump, I mean, it, and I think what happened was is because when Space Force was first introduced by President Trump, people, um, the, the like Democratic Party, um, a lot of the news outlets tried to make it like it was a joke. You, you know, yeah. and, and it was kind of I, I I found it very um, insulting that they would do that, you know, because, I mean, you guys are just as important part of the military as any other branch in my eyes. You know, we've always needed um, something, you know, like what you guys do. But I think yeah. the is, is they politicize it so much and they tried to make the like the Democratic Party. And I don't know how you feel about politics and all that, but like Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. and all them, um, they kind of it was because they were taking a shot at Trump because they didn't like Trump, you know, and do you feel like that was some of the back, you know, the backfall from that? Um, of course, these, these are my own opinions. So, I mean, everybody, everybody's on a stage, you know, and, uh, they have to, they have to show their, their support for or against, you know, they're, they're constantly in the limelight. Right. Um, but you know, outside of that, the, the day-to-day politicians working behind the scenes, the bipartisan support, you know, across the, the, the Capitol Hill, you know, was in favor of the space force. There, there was not a mention that, you know, it's not necessary. Um, you know, that was more of a media thing that they were just trying to hype it up. Yeah. I mean, it, it had had a lot of people that were in support of it. And then of course there are a lot of people that, you know, said it wasn't necessary and you're going to get that, you know, it's, it's going to happen with pretty much any decision that comes out of the government. You're going to have, Right. Or or against, um, right? And their constituents are the ones that you know that kind of support what they say. You know that they're that's where they they get their money from. Um, right. You know. So yeah, I mean that's that's just kind of the way it is. That's the reality of it, right? But yeah, the service the service as a whole is doing great work. You know, we we work twenty four seven in a lot of areas. Um, there's a lot of capabilities that are considered critical infrastructure for the United States that the Space Force manages and maintains. And, and without our technical experts on console fighting the good fight every single day, um, you know, those are, are left to either get degraded over time or, or not be managed efficiently to continue to support society. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it sounds like it. I, I've learned some things I, I had no idea. I did not know that GPS played a role in using your bank card even. You know, I yeah. I, I, I mean, I I knew it played a role in, like, geolocation of, like, ATMs and that sort of thing, but I had no idea, like, you couldn't use your bank card without it um, yeah. or something like that. And I think uh, that's cri- that's definitely critical to the infrastructure of the United States. I mean, that's our financial system. If that goes down... Mm-hmm. And people can't use their bank card or buy gas. I mean, what you know? What are we going to do? Everybody's going to yeah. freak out. Society's going to crumble. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah. I I I appreciate everything you guys do, and I've always thought um, that there should be some sort of um, you know a a, uh, a branch of military um, in charge of these things because as we you know as we develop as a nation and develop as a civilization, really there's going to be more and more need for people like you in, in my eyes, just because a lot of, you know, warfare and stuff like that is going to go to cyber warfare and shutting down critical infrastructure. You know, if they, if um, they attack us and we can't, we can't fight that off. I mean, what are we, what are we going to do? You know? Yeah. And that's, that's why it's critical for the DOD to, you know, obtain professionals that are willing to defend from those types of threats and, mm-hmm. 
thankfully you have the Space Force that has a good cyber uh, professional corps, and then you have the Air Force that has cyber professionals, and you know the Navy and the Marine Corps. You know, there's there's cyber professionals in all branches of service. So, um, you know, protecting critical infrastructure is is going to become very important. And um, you know, it's a new age. It's a new era of war fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, still have some old era type capabilities but with new age technology and it's it's a different way of of doing the war fighting so yeah i mean it's crazy the new um there's viruses and programs that they're developing every day there's uh there's one that just i can't remember what it's called man oh man anyways it's a um it's a program that they can put on your phone without your phone even being turned on without you clicking on a link, without you touching anything, they can just send it (laughs) over the signals, put it on your phone, they can track everything you're doing. I wish I could remember what it's called. Uh, Yeah, the cybersecurity realm is is very complex these days, especially when it comes to artificial intelligence, you know, mm -hmm. improving, um, you know, your ability to manipulate anything that you see in the digital space, in the cyber realm. Um, You know, people can take copies of my face and my, my voice um, and recreate the video and make it sound like I said something completely different. And right. that is scary technology. Um, and you have to have good experts out there that can, you know, identify, detect and track and mm-hmm. and remove some of that nefarious content um, as it's discovered. So how, how do you feel about chat GPT? Are you familiar with that at all? Yeah, my my friends and I were uh, kind of talking about chat GPT. Yes. Well, two days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's amazing what that technology can do. You can give it a few words and it can automatically generate uh, a biography for you or you, you know, give it something, you know, photographic related and it can automatically generate uh, a new visual concept of it. And it's uh, pretty amazing what ChatGPT can do. It's it's mind blowing. I don't have you ever personally used ChatGPT at all? No, I haven't yet. You haven't? I've used it a few times just to mess with it. And uh, it can do, it's just crazy. And I'm, it's kind of um, scary because if that, if that technology got in the wrong hands, imagine the things they could do with it. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, that we think about, right? Um, While there is goodness in, in a lot of this stuff, there's always people that can take it and, Mm-hmm. use it for various reasons so yeah um, yeah i mean you can do that you can look back in in history with any any sort of technology that's developed if someone always tries to exploit it and do you know use it for the wrong the wrong reasons so yeah. um what do you what do you guys like have um something where you're developing anything that you know can, can kind of counteract any nefarious you know use of the of chat dpt or other ai um, not, not that I'm aware of. I don't work or live in that realm anymore. Um, okay. I got a master's in cybersecurity a few years back, uh, but I don't, I don't work in anything cyber related. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I've got a, um, cybersecurity expert he's going to be on the podcast here in a few weeks. So maybe he can answer that for me, but, um, but yeah, man. So what, what exactly, you know, I, I know we've been going for almost an hour and I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you're in the car and you're busy. You got stuff going on. So, um, all right. What, what exactly? So I saw you on TikTok. Um, that's where I first was able to get in contact with you. Um, do you want to, you know, tell everybody your TikTok name or where they can reach you if they have any questions or anything like that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm I'm uh, Space Force Chuck on TikTok. I'm mm -hmm. Space Force Chuck on Instagram. Um, you can find me also uh, if you find me on any one of those platforms. I have a link tree, and I have a Space Force Chuck at Gmail email that they can send notes to me as well. Um, if anybody cool. ever has questions or you know they they have comments about today's session, they can reach out to me through any one of those. I I do try to put people in touch with recruiters as well. So if anybody's interested in joining the service or wants to know more, um, they can always contact me and I can put them in touch with the right people depending on where they are. Um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's cool. where you can find me. Cool. I'll put all the links down in the show notes as well. Um, cool. Is there an age, like a age requirement for Space Force? Is it like the same as a regular military, like other it's, branches uh, or... Our, our age gap is the same cap as the, the Air Force. It's age 39. Okay. Uh, we don't take anything over 39 unless it's waiverable for any reason. Got you. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I'll put that in the uh, show notes, and this this episode should drop, I'd say, probably oh. uh, Monday or Tuesday. Um, and then I'll send you a link of the, uh, the conversation for you to distribute it to your people or whatever you want to do with it, man. Yeah, just uh, I think usually the one disclosure that I put, of course, like anything that I say isn't, you know, tied back to the DOD. This is just me. Um, you know, these are my comments and my opinions. So right. um, I'm not representing the DOD in any way. Uh, I just serve in the current <laughs> branch of military. And, uh, you know, so if folks want to want to know more. I can talk within my my reference, if you will. <laughs> Got you within your realm of expertise. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah exactly. well, um, and I, I do want to thank you for your service, Chuck. You guys are doing some important work, and we, you know, the American people appreciate it. I know they do. Um, yeah. Anybody that yeah, doesn't probably isn't too American, so. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you reaching out and wanting to know more about the Space Force. It's it's always exciting for me to mm -hmm. uh, come on podcasts like yours and, you know, talk about the service and talk about the things that we're doing. Um, it's a great way for me to connect to new people and, and really get information out there about what the Space Force really is and, and what we're truly doing every day. And, um, I hope that uh, people appreciate it. And you know, as always, I'm free to talk to you. So it's, uh, it's not hard to get in touch with me. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm, I'm sure that I'll be I, I know.